0: you're gonna bring it up and and just put salt on the wound will you stop yelling at
1: me no live in the entertainment capital of the world no no you're making me nervous but seriously it's the tc martin show no listen uh, you're making me nervous
0: diagnosis Oh, prognosis well that's good osmosis and they'll
1: reset nowitzki again for the lead Bang! it's the doctor tc martin hey, Hour number two of the program. Glad to have you with us. This hour, we'll uh, talk a little NFL, college football, get you updated on more of the cancellations. Scott Spreitzer from Doc Sports will join us as we start picking some winners for Sunday. At least we got a full docket, it looks like. We do have news that we talked about last hour the Raiders. Uh, Cleveland Farrell, the defensive end for the Raiders. Uh, has tested positive for COVID-19. There are eight other Raiders on the defensive side of the ball that will go into the COVID protocol. So we'll have some more information about that uh, a little bit later on in the show as well. So we'll get to that. But uh, we are going to start off uh, this hour with uh, someone someone's very close to my heart. And uh, he's one of the most innovative college basketball coaches in the history. And I'm not going to say just college, just overall basketball coaches in the history of our game he is the guru of go as i like to call him the inventor of the system the fast-breaking style of basketball he brought joy to basketball fans over the years he won an nba championship with the lakers back in 1980 and then 27 years later he won a wnba title with the phoenix mercury and of course college basketball fans remember his teams at loyal and marymont those great teams there with Hank Gathers, Bo Kimball and company. And uh, he joins us now. We're talking about Paul Westhead. Paul, thanks for taking the time and joining us today. Thank you, my pleasure. Well, great to talk with you, my friend. And uh, I'm a former basketball coach as well. The system really struck a chord with me where I actually used it with my high school teams. I thought you were way ahead of your game with that. It was a system that I tried to master, but as we know, Paul, you really need the personnel really to master that. Your system and that fast-break style of basketball really made a dent with me and a lot of other high school coaches as well. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, I hope that when you tried it, you had a
2: long contract because many times (laughs) Many times you get fired when you follow the the speed game and you play so fast. Uh, it's, it's nice when it works, but when it doesn't work, you don't look good. And I think coaches like to stay away from not looking good.
1: That is true. All right. So let's tell the story here and how you came up with the idea of the system.
2: Well, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia. I, I played at St. Joseph's College uh, for Jack Ramsey and, you know, he was uh, the precision master. He did everything offensively and defensively, almost flawless. And when I started college coaching at Salle in Philadelphia, I thought I'd do something different. I, I wanted to try and experiment. And while I was coaching in college, I coached in the summers in San Juan, Puerto Rico, And the Puerto Rican players like to play fast, so uh, experimenting with them in the summer and coming back to LaSalle during the 70s in the winter, I put in my fast break system and, you know, I was caught. I, I couldn't play slow after that. I had to shoot the ball within five seconds of every possession.
1: So a lot of people don't realize, though, too, that you just can't implement a system like this. You really have to have the right personnel to do it. And I think what was what was great is that you were able to recruit guys to fit into your system as well, too. So talk a little bit about that. I mean, you can have this great innovative uh, scheme and system, but if you don't have that right personnel, like you said, it could be short-lived.
2: Yeah, you're right. Uh... And, and in many of my jobs, uh, you know, NBA and college, uh, uh, I didn't have the right players, and I'd last a year or two and get fired. Uh, when I was at Loyola Marymount University, uh, I was able to acquire uh, a couple of my buddies from Philadelphia, Bo Kimball and Hank Gathers, and Corey Gaines transferred from UCLA, and I got Tom Peabody to transfer So with about four new players, the system uh, worked because they wanted it to work. They wanted to play fast. Most young guys say they want to play fast, but when you practice for about a week, they're done. They don't want to do it anymore.
3: When it comes to that, and you are conditioning, how does your conditioning change from some of the other coaches? And I would imagine that although you mentioned some of the Stars players, another thing important in that system would be you want to have a little bit of a bench or a deep as bench as possible so that you can keep fresh bodies coming in to keep up that pace for an entire game.
2: Yeah, some, some coaches who try and run will deploy the kind of a rotation five-on-five-off system. Uh, almost like ice hockey. I didn't do it that way. Uh, I programmed our guys that we could play eight players and just rotate a couple positions. Uh, Sometimes we'd go deeper than that, but a lot of times we didn't. It's just a commitment. I mean, uh, I didn't do any stand-around half-court teaching where we would walk through how to play pick and roll. We ran through everything. So it was always the speed game, the speed game that we were teaching. So our players were very prepared to play 40 minutes nonstop up and down.
1: Paul Westhead is uh, joining us, the uh, former innovative basketball coach, had success, of course, in the NBA, winning a championship in 1980 with the Lakers. The WNBA won a title there, and of course, his great teams at Loyola Marymount University as well. Paul, let's talk a little bit about that Lakers championship in 1980. Talk about that team, how you got that job, and then, unfortunately, coming off of that championship, you lost the job the next year. Yeah, well,
2: uh, I was fortunate to get the position because Jack McKinney from Philadelphia hired me as his assistant, uh, and then he had a very serious bicycle accident, and early in the season I had to take over, uh, not because they necessarily loved me. Back then there was one assistant coach, so it was either me or the trainer. (laughs) So they, they said, all right, you have them. And then later in the season, I brought Pat Riley in uh, from the broadcast booth. He was uh, Chick Hearn's uh, color man. And, you know, we had, we had just good players. We had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was, like, at his best then. And we had Magic Johnson as a rookie. And, as you know, Magic's career blossomed at the end of the year when Kareem was injured and he had, Magic had to play center. And we won a championship with Magic, scoring 42 points in the championship game and in my hometown of Philadelphia.
1: Right. So talk about that following year. I mean, it had to be a crushing blow. You don't see many people win an NBA title and then get let go. What was behind all that? And, and take us through that.
2: Well, uh, you know, we had our ups and downs. It's hard to repeat Uh Magic was injured for a good bit of of the season. He had knee surgery. Uh and we never really got, you know, it going again. Uh, uh but, you know, uh you know, I thought we were we were playing pretty good. we were we were literally into my third season, we were on a five game winning streak and uh Jerry Bruss brought me in and said, you know, uh yeah, those those fateful words uh We decided to let you go. We're going to make a change. So uh, I learned for the first time what it's like to get fired. And at the end of my career, I was fired 14 out of 20 times. So uh, I I know what it's like.
1: (laughs) And then uh, insert Pat Riley. And, again, I I think it's uh, very interesting. A lot of people don't know that. You brought Pat Riley in. Uh, and then and then Riley goes on to not only a, a great career coaching, but then you know as a uh, team president and general manager uh, as well too. So uh, yeah, we can thank yeah. Paul, we can thank uh, Paul Westhead for bringing in Pat Riley.
2: Well, uh, again, it, the irony of this is it was mid season. I didn't really have a lot of choices, and uh, I, I, I got to know Pat because he traveled with the team and. And I knew he knew the league, and, and he was a very personable guy. So uh, uh, I took a chance, and he turned out that he he obviously is very very good, and has continued that as president of the Miami team.
1: You mentioned Loyola Marymount, and we remember those teams, especially here in Vegas. And I'll, I'll, I want to get some thoughts about those battles against Tark and the Rebels as well, too. But I want to talk about when you went to LMU. It was not a household name at all, a smaller conference. But talk about getting that job and how you were able to recruit the players that you did and, like you said, bringing Bo Kimble and Hank Gathers from Philadelphia, getting Corey Gaines from UCLA to transfer and making LMU into basically a powerhouse very, very quickly. Well, my experience in coaching over
2: 50 years is that if you can accumulate the players – uh, it can work, uh, you know. So with gathers and Kimball and Gaines and a young surfing boy down in uh, Corona del Mar, Jeff Fryer, uh, we were able to put together a group of young guys who just wanted to play their hearts out. And uh, we did have some some nice games against UNLV. Uh, I have to bring up to you: we we opened the season and. And the NIT uh, at the uh, the, Mac, uh, the Mac Arena, uh, and we're winning the game, and all of a sudden they stop because there's a bomb scare. Uh, didn't didn't fit real well with our team. You can't run the fast break if there's a bomb scare and people <laughs> are running for the exit. <laughs> uh, but but at the end of that season, uh, uh, they they did it in finally in the ncaa tournament uh tarkanians guys with stacy Ogman and uh, and company they were too strong for us and knocked us out
1: hey two other guys i remember off off of that team too is a uh, terrell lowry and uh and pierce Sturmer, who could light it up from distance as well too and with that system you have to have three-point shooters right yes you do uh but more importantly you know and, and
2: i saw the lakers this year they Uh, they could run a fast break pretty well at times. Like uh, uh, Anthony Davis, uh, when Miami would score, he would sprint the the lane, and they'd throw a lead lob to him, and he'd dunk ahead of the defense. We did that routinely. But now that same player will shoot a 35-footer. I mean, Anthony Davis can can shoot downtown with the best of them. Uh, We just wanted to shoot quick. We didn't really care whether it was a layup, or a 25-footer. Now the game has spread out. It's not as fast, but, boy, they can shoot.
3: I had the pleasure of uh, interviewing Bo Kimball years ago, and I remember one of the things about him was that he still had a, a special place in his heart for Hank Gathers. For some of the people out there that maybe didn't get a chance to see him play, could you tell people a little bit about him? Because he was one of the big men who could really, truly do it all. And unfortunately, we never got to see him uh, grow and play in the NBA. How good of an NBA player would he have been, and what was he like as a person?
2: Well, I think he would have had a great career in the NBA. Uh, He would not probably have been like an all-star, but he would have been a 10- a 10- to 12-year veteran who averaged 12 points and 12 rebounds a game. Uh, as you know, in his junior year at LMU, he led the country in scoring and rebounding. So Hank was just one of those tenacious guys that just went down the lane and dominated. He would dominate with the ball. He'd dunk if somebody shot on his team. He'd get the rebound and score back. Uh, I can remember we played LSU Uh, Down in Baton Rouge, and he had his first five shots blocked by Shaquille O'Neal. And there was a timeout, and Hank came over to us and said, get me the ball. Uh, And he then went on to score 45 points and 25 rebounds. So Gathers was unstoppable. That's what I remember most about him as a player.
1: You know, Paul, I think probably obviously the toughest part that any coach would have to deal with. And you went through this with having a player, you know, die uh, that's on your team and just not only just integral part of your team, but just being just a great person. Like you mentioned, Um, Um, I just, I can't even fathom how that would affect you personally. And then to go on later to, have people basically say, well, maybe it was because of the system, because of the pace, because of the, the conditioning and everything you went through. Talk a little bit uh, about that. Cause we know there were lawsuits that ensued with that. That just had to be a very, very rough time for you.
2: Well, it was a rough time, but it, it was 100% because Hank was such a good young man and to see him die on the court right in front of us, uh, for me, my family, and all of the team, uh, it was just a hardship that we'll never forget about. Uh, they had a uh, unveiling of a statue for Hank uh, commemorating 30 years. Uh, it, it feels like three minutes ago, not 30 years ago. Uh, he was such a dynamic young man, uh, so uh, I... I felt for him and I felt for his family and, and he, he was so good to us. And to me, I can remember, uh, one time after a game, I was with my 12 year old daughter, Juliet, and she had a crush on Jeff Fryer. So she'd wait for him to come out and Hank came out first and he walked right over to her and said, hi, Julie, who's your favorite player? And she said, you are Hank. (laughs) And, and and that really speaks of Hank Gathers, the the young man. That uh, he he made you want to like him. And there were so many reasons to like him. So his passing, his death uh just took everything out of us.
1: Paul Westhead taking the time and joining us today. And Paul's got a new book called The Speed Game, My Fast Times in Basketball. It's available on Amazon. We'll touch on that here in a minute. And people remember the ESPN 30 for 30, the guru go. I thought that was just a, a phenomenal piece, but I want to, every time that there's a documentary done, I always like to talk to the person that was involved with this or that the story was about and get your opinion on this. What was it about that? That, that did you agree with did, they, did it turn out how you wanted it to? What was your opinion of that documentary?
2: Yeah, I thought they did a good job. Um, uh, there were some parts that they they cut out. Uh, they cut out uh, some uh, things of me on on the streets of Philadelphia, uh, trying to to make it as a as a young player. Uh, you know, I was a I was a street player, and and I had out in L.A. Uh, I had my grandson with me, and they videoed a lot of shots with him. Uh, dribbling the ball and, and me trying to help him as a future street player—that's where basketball is really learned. And and they just said, "Well, we don't really need to do that. We we we, we have what we want." So sometimes, uh, you know, the ultimate producers just pick and choose. And I felt unfortunate that they left out the part that I was a kid who grew up in the streets of Philadelphia.
3: You know, I know TC mentioned before that when you went to Loyola Marymount that they weren't that well-knowing. You certainly put them on the map. I remember looking forward to that game against Oklahoma that year when they talked about how great it was going to be, and it certainly was one of the most exciting college basketball games that opened a lot of people's eyes. How did that game and just that season and that team – Help you from that point on, recruiting and everybody, and making Loyola Marymount somebody that all of a sudden went from a kind of unknown school to a team that everybody knew.
2: Yeah, we, well, it is interesting when when we first started the the fast break system, we we couldn't get a game on TV uh, any which way, and then I remember ESPN said, well, if you could pay for the rights we might put you on once or twice. And I think you had to pay, I don't know, $15,000 for their, uh, equipment to come in. And then in our final year, you know, we were on all the time. So it just shows you that winning begins to turn the tide in your favor. And, uh, and recruiting, you know, young men thought they wanted to come and play at LMU because of, of all the scoring, uh, And we had enough good players that uh, we were going to sustain that for a while.
1: And a nice campus to boot too, right? Yeah. It's a beautiful campus. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's a beautiful
2: campus, but schools like Loyola Marymount, uh, if you don't win, you won't get good enough players to win. So it keeps spinning around.
1: No doubt about that. All right. Paul, I love the WNBA story. Obviously WNBA close to my heart here in, in Vegas. But uh, many people thought that you couldn't run the system in the women's game. They were so wrong about that. Talk about that story. You coached Diana Taurasi, you coached the Phoenix Mercury, and you took them to a championship. And, again, I want, I want to be in that huddle. I want to be in that opening day in that locker room of you talking to these women saying, hey, we're running the system. And I remember Corey Gaines was your assistant at that point in time. I remember him asking yep, you, hey, coach, when are we going to run with the women? You go, eh, running the system, right? Okay, so I
2: accept the job, and I fly into Phoenix for the press conference and then to start practice. And who meets me at the airport but Diana Taurasi? Now, I just want to say to you, I've had 20 coaching jobs. I never had a player meet me at the airport. (laughs) Can can you imagine Kareem or Magic meeting me in L.A. and say, welcome, coach? (laughs) So... Uh, And what Diana was trying to say to me was, now that you're our new coach, treat us like the guys. That's what she said to me. She said, treat us. Give us all the drills. Don't water anything down. And I didn't. And not surprisingly, halfway through that season, it wasn't working. We were losing. And if you were coaching guys, they would give up on you. And she came to me and said, if you hang in, we'll hang in. I said, okay. The following season, we win a championship and coincidentally in Detroit against Bill Lambeer, who had a very, very good team, and we were fortunate enough to win in Game 6.
3: When it comes to coaching the women's team like that, I know in the combat sports, they always say when a woman walks into the gym, she always gives her best because she has so much more to prove. Did you kind of find that in the WNBA as well, that not that men dog it or something like that, because we know how hard they work, but did you find that the women basically came and brought it every single day, every every single time they were out on the court?
2: Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily make that distinction. I think that's a quality of very good players. So, I mean, Kareem brought it every day. Diana Taurasi brought it every day. Uh, Hank Gather,s Bo Kimball brought it every day. But the difference that I found between coaching men and women is the women follow the scheme more exactly. So I would put in my fast break And five games into the season, win or lose. Ten games into the season, win or lose. They were following the scheme. In the NBA, if you're after ten games, if you're three and seven, your players are going to uh, not follow the system. They're going to say, this isn't working, coach. Try something else or let's get another coach.
3: You've mentioned Kareem a couple times. Where would he fit in today's game with it being so heavy on the three-point line? Because certainly in his era, he was one of, if not the most dominant players that there was.
2: Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, You know, you can compare Kareem to Anthony Davis the way that he can play inside and rebound and and score inside. But Davis is like a classic 25, 30-foot shooter. I don't know if Kareem would ever adjust to that. But I will say the opposite. Kareem is so good that teams would adjust to him. Like, if you had Kareem and he didn't want to shoot 30-footers, you'd let him shoot the ball inside. I mean, he's that good. Uh, So I
1: think Kareem
2: wouldn't have to change his game. I think people would change their game for him.
1: So, Paul, let me ask you, why don't more coaches try to commit to the system? Is it just because it's too hard? Because when you're recruiting athletes, the first thing that they say is, hey, are we going to be up-tempo? We know every kid coming out of junior high to high school, they they want to run. And they want to play for a coach that can get uh, have their teams get up and down the floor. But we haven't seen other coaches Commit to it like you did what's the main reason
2: well here here it is in a nutshell uh, um you have it players want to run, you may recruit some of them, you know thinking that they want to run, but when you start practice as a fast break coach and you're tough on it and you're following it after about a week or ten days, they don't want to run uh so Uh, a lot of coaches begin to adjust. They say, well, if if my team doesn't really want to run, I better put some plays in. And once you start putting plays in, then you go slower. And then when you go slower, then you need to have more plays to counter the slow plays you put in. So you get stuck. So the only way to do this is to play faster. And most teams won't follow. They'll crack Uh, and therefore you get stuck, but every once in a while, like LMU and like the Phoenix Mercury, uh, it's a thing of beauty because they just kept running and kept smiling and kept winning.
1: There he is, the guru of go, the inventor of the system, the fast-breaking style of basketball that so many people love to watch, Paul Westhead joins us, and Paul's got a book out, The Speed Game, My Fast Times in Basketball, available on Amazon, talk a little bit about this, Paul, is it kind of a continuation or a spin-off, so to speak, of what we saw on the ESPN 30 for 30, and what got you to pen this book? yeah i think
2: it's a little bit like that but it's more uh, some details about you know the the good and the bad the the good you know the winning uh, like at lmu that was great but there were a lot of downtimes you know uh going to coaching the chicago bulls and and getting fired after your first season and right. uh you know and and, and the, all the disappointments and the and the losing you know as i mentioned i, I I had 20 jobs and I got fired in 14 of them. So uh, there's a lot of downside uh, if you're going to try and play fast and stick to a system. But I just wanted to be able to put down in words the uh, the system works. And when it does, it's beautiful. And sometimes uh, you got to pack up and move. Uh, My wife wasn't very happy a lot of the times.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, we look forward to diving into this book, The Speed Game, My Fast Times in Basketball, by Paul Westhead, uh, available at Amazon. All right, my friend, great visiting with you today. Hopefully we can catch up with you again. Uh, And again, just a pleasure. Thank you very much. Take care. There he is, Paul Westhead, the guru of go. Again, one of my favorite coaches, and, again, trying to emulate uh, the way he ran that system. And uh, I could still watch those old Loyola Marymount uh, games over and over again, especially when they played UNLV. And you mentioned the Oklahoma game. That was a classic.
3: Wait, It was a classic. And, and the other thing about that, too, it's like you have to find that special type athlete, like he mentioned, that's not only willing to do that, but you have to have somebody who has the sprinter-type muscles, like a Usain Bolt or something, but also a marathon distance because you're doing it for the full course of the games, 40 minutes in college, 48 in the pros, whatever. So, you know, I mean, there's a lot to it because a lot of people can go that pace for a little while, and that's why I thought it was interesting when he said Everybody wanted to come there and play fast until they had to go through the practices right. and find out what it was like playing fast. It's kind of like Tark with his UNLV mm-hmm. teams. Everybody wanted to go there until they found out that the practices were so tough. The games were the reward exactly. for it. Exactly. Yep. If you survived the practice, the game was nothing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And yeah, some of those uh, conditioning regiments. That Paul Westhead used to conduct, uh, there in the beaches there in Southern California and running through the sand and those hills and and again those you know, grueling times. But yeah, even Rocky used it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Philadelphia <laughs> reference. There it is. The native Philadelphia and with Paul Apollo Westhead.
3: Creed running in the sand together. There you go. <laughs> All
1: right, we come back. Scott Sprites is gonna join us. We start breaking down NFL week eleven. East,
0: East, East, East. TC Martin. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. The doctor is now in. in, in.
1: Don't forget, get signed up for the William Hill mobile app. So especially if you don't have it yet, get it. And now's a great time to get it because you can get free money in your account when you deposit at least $50 in the account. They'll match it. If you use the promo code TC50, that's right. First-time users, sign up at any of the William Hill establishments. And uh, next time you come on over and see us at the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas, now a William Hill book, come on over, get signed up. Yes, $50 deposit, you can turn that into $100 of free play there. Just use the promo code TC50, get signed up with the William Hill mobile app. All right, Scott Spreitzer joins us now. Our good friend, handicapper extraordinaire. Scott, I don't know how you're doing it because we're trying to make picks and we have cancellations, we got postponements. How you doing it, my man? Well, I'm just waiting as late in the week as possible.
0: That's what I've been doing uh, almost the entire season after the first couple of weeks trying to do it the normal way. But, yeah, I mean, the uh, college football field this week is heavily decimated by postponements and cancellations and and then, of course, we got a late afternoon announcement on that Raiders situation with at least seven starters shutting down practice, potentially all being able to play on Sunday night against KC, but also potentially all seven uh, not being able to play. So it's, it's just been one of those things where you just got to wait till later in the week.
1: So the one thing that you probably don't have to wait uh, late in the week to handicap is probably your favorite baseball organization. And I bring this up because Ballpark Frank has been hounding me about this. He's been giving me daily updates over the last couple weeks. And I said, you sound like Scott Spreiser. I think Scott and you are the only guys that are watching the KBO, betting on the KBO. What's going on here? And is this a World Series? Wait, wait. It can't be called a World Series because it's not a World Series. Right, Scott? Well, neither is the one in America either. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) It's a North American World Series. What are they? Kind where, of. So, what do you know, they call it in Mexico? It's the KBO Championships, I believe. Is that what it is? Yeah, KBO Finals. KBO Series yeah. is what I it's heard last
3: night. Yeah, it's not that they don't, they don't call it the World They're not so egotistical that they call it the World Series <laughs> when
0: it's not. You know, Frank, that's what I was saying. I mean, We can't even call it the North American Series because we don't include Mexican teams. This is true. So, you know, we're basically, you know, but hey, you know, what the heck, it is the best brand of baseball, so there you go. There you go. Uh, yeah, KBO, I mean, TC, I'm 6-1-1 one and one so far in the playoffs, so there it is. Uh, got a real lucky win this morning with Dusan over NC 5-4. to four. Uh, NC was blistering liners all over the place, and they were going, it was kind of like watching the playoffs in the States last month. They were blistering liners all over the place, and they were going right to Dusan fielders, so... Uh, that series is tied at one. They get back at it on Friday. It's a best-of-seven series.
3: Yeah, and on Friday, they actually play two games because there's one in the morning, and then there's the one that will be the next day game, which will actually be nighttime here. So Friday, there's actually kind of two games here if you're in Vegas. And you mentioned those blistering line drives in that. Five double plays for the NC Dinos in that game, and some very weird ones, too, because they were hitting it right on the screws but just not scoring. And then the bullpen for Doosan almost blew it, but it didn't happen. And I'm sure that if there was in-game wagering on these games, you'd really be chomping at the bit once they go to the bullpens in the kbo
0: oh absolutely frank all season long when i played unders i almost always made it a first five innings under and uh, would stay completely away i'm going to tell you what if i had 35 totals or unders i should say in the kbo this year Mm -hmm. 33 of them were first five inning totals and the other other two uh which were full game totals were the first two unders i bet of the season but i realized how bad the pens were and i switched Mm -hmm. to going first five under Uh, And also, what I've seen from this, uh, uh, the playoffs especially, I I think there's like really weird managing that goes on. I I don't think there's any pay. They don't pay any attention to the most important metrics. And you know, when you're talking about the managers, which in some cases, if you're the Tampa Bay Rays, is a good thing. Uh, But in this particular situation, I mean, they'll have a man on second, TC with nobody out, and lay down a sacrifice bunt. You see this all the time, and I'm like. You just sit there and shake your head, and you're like, are you kidding me? Man on second, nobody
1: out, top of the first, yep. and you lay down a top of the That's some so old-school baseball, though. I mean, we used to see that decades ago, Scott. We did see and that. Then we, yeah. And, and yeah. then, like everything else, we got a little smarter, yeah. and we right. stopped doing it. Well, I, um, but, it's
0: listen, I'm, I'm happy with the way things have gone. Six-one-and-one, one. the push was a total uh, that I had in the last series for Doosan uh, against LG. Uh, but, yeah, so, you know, I, I'm kind of bummed to see – uh, the, the, uh, the league actually going away after one of these teams gets to four wins. And, you know, i got to tell you, I'm not going to be shocked. if Right now it's tied at one game apiece. I'm not going to be shocked if NC sweeps the final three games or at least wins, you know, three of the final four games and you see a four-to-two series at best.
3: Well, and you mentioned that, too, about if if the dinos sweep it. How about this? Before the series starts, they have the players from both teams on a podium, and the media asks them how many games do they think the series will last, and they all make their predictions. They're standing there with five fingers up or six or whatever. So they're saying we're going to win in this many games. The the teams actually stand there for a photo op predicting how long the series will go. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's a different mindset. Absolutely. And, you know, I tell you what, I got to admit, I've enjoyed the game. Is it major league level? Obviously not. Uh, It's not as high up as the Japanese professional league. Nope. You know, so it's somewhere caught between double A and triple A. There's a lot of times when you're making your bets and then you're watching games and you're seeing, you know, slow rollers go to third and get between a guy's legs. And next (laughs) thing you know, you got a guy on second where they should be out of the inning. Uh, So it is, it's different. It's Again, it's not anywhere close to the level of Major League Baseball. But it's been enjoyable, especially before we got American sports back in late July. I mean, it's been enjoyable to watch, and I've made a lot of bets on it. Yeah, so and,
1: there you go. And I remember, I mean, going way back, you were the first to, to talk about this during those early days of the pandemic. And you're talking about, hey, I, I, you know, I'm going to be handicapping the KBO. And we're going, what is And you started giving us these updates. And uh, I guess it does grow on you as well and not only that but I mean you must really feel that you know this league pretty well because if you're watching it so often and you're making bets it it wouldn't surprise me that you're doing well. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where you, it's just like anything else.
0: I mean, you watch it constantly. You know the ins and the outs. You know the managers who are going to make the right decisions at the right time, as opposed to those who won't. Uh, you know the better pitchers in the league. I mean, you know Alcantara was fantastic during the regular season, and he's you know an import from the states via Latin America. And until the playoffs, the guy gets a stiff neck. If you're not watching it every night, you don't know that he's gone from a 20 and two record and a sub 250 ERA on the season to not having his best stuff because he's got a stiff neck. You're only going to find that out by watching it. Now his last two starts or two of his last three have been shaky, and it's you know the thing is, guys, it was in my wheelhouse. I go to sleep at four, four thirty, you know, in the morning. So this was the perfect league for me over the course of the summer when nothing else was going on
1: all right and i'm calling a halt to the bout right now because you and frank are the only two guys that don't sleep at night and stay up and watch this stuff and i'm tired of hearing about it but if not you know i'm gonna have to start talking about the bundesliga i'm gonna go go to my wheelhouse there you go <laughs> <laughs> he is scott Spritzer breaking down the kbo enough of that all right college football Scott Clemson is getting back into action this week off of that loss uh, to Notre Dame a couple weeks ago Trevor Lawrence is back they're laying 35 at Florida State so for people who haven't been paying attention to what's going on with Florida State football lately they might say five touchdowns on the road are you kidding me but is Florida State really that bad do we want to do we want to jump in front of this uh, this, this, this train that could be coming by way of uh, Clemson this weekend uh, do, not, do
0: not jump in the way of the Clemson Tigers would be my advice or my recommendation. This is blowout city. I went against Florida State last week, laid 10, it got up to I believe 11 or so mm-hmm. against NC State, NC State being the chalk of that one, and I never felt like I was on the wrong side, uh, even when it was closed for a while. And it's a situation where this coaching staff has completely lost this team. Uh, you've got guys bailing on Florida State left and right. Some are opting out. Some are just transferring. Uh, this is going to be one of those situations. Listen, they've lost three in a row, guys, by an average of 24 points per game. The Florida State Seminoles are going to be in the we-were-once-relevant bowl at the end of this season. I mean, it's, it's just not the Florida State that we even came close to coming to know even, you know, before this latest coaching move. So uh, it's a situation where they don't have the offense. Clemson is going to overwhelm them. Clemson's going to be ticked off. Dabo Sweeney... I tell you what, if he's got a chance to put you know, 65 on the board in this game, he will. I think Florida State's going to have a tough time scoring more than two touchdowns. I will not be shocked if this is 35-6 to six at halftime. Clemson ends up putting up another 30 points on the board, allows Florida State to score seven, and you're looking at a 48-50 to 50 point win. I really do believe that this is blowout city start to finish. The bottom line is the Noles, a lot of their players have bailed on this coaching staff.
1: Yeah, and backup quarterback too, right? Yeah, Right.
0: He was the starter at the beginning of the season. He got replaced. And by the way, for all the right reasons, he got replaced. He was struggling against Jacksonville State. They were going to lose the football game. Sit his butt down, bring in the other guy. The guy leads him on a couple of touchdown drives and played well the next couple of games. So listen, man, sour grapes. You want to transfer, transfer.
1: And here's another thing, too. I don't think a lot of people are thinking about or talking about, but Trevor Lawrence is coming back here, and he's now kind of been a foregone conclusion for the Heisman Trophy. I got a feeling he's going to go back and pass quite often here, and Dabo's going to let him probably play this entire game or close to it, Scott. And uh, maybe with some big numbers here, if Lawrence throws for over 500 yards, he could get back in this conversation. That might be a key element, too, for laying the wood.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. They're not going to take Trevor Lawrence out of its 41-7 to at halftime. They're not Mm -hmm. going to do it. He's going to play. He's trying to get back into legitimate Heisman, you know, talk after missing the games. And so it's a situation where I think they'll keep him in as long as they possibly can. And that means until the late stages of the fourth quarter, and he should do what you said, and he should pile up all those yards and throw touchdown after touchdown. Bailey Hockman threw four touchdown passes last week against the Seminoles defense. Bailey Hockman was originally a Florida state quarterback and transferred out Uh, when Taggart was in place. And so I think when you look at guys like Hawkman, who's good, but nowhere near Lawrence's league, firing at will against Florida State, throwing four touchdown passes, this is up to Lawrence and Sweeney on how much they want to actually score, how many yards they actually want to gain in this particular football game.
3: And certainly Lawrence and the offense, uh, you know, he, he should help them out a little bit. But has the offense really been the problem with Clemson? When you're looking at big picture, is that defense good enough to win and be the championship team that a lot of people thought they were going to be going into this season?
0: I, I think they have the ability to to anybody in college football. They could also lose to Alabama. Um, maybe Ohio State. See, that's the thing about, like, the Buckeyes. You know, the actual grain on Ohio State is still out because they played nobody. Uh, we found out you know, the win over Penn State didn't mean squat after watching Penn State struggle for most of three quarters in a loss to Nebraska, who was also looking for their, you know, their first win. I mean, the Big Ten is kind of a joke. I mean, it's Ohio State and everybody else. I guess you can throw Wisconsin into that next level behind Ohio State, but it's a mess. And so I, I think Alabama and Clemson rightly, rightfully should be number one and number two, and then it's everybody else. So, yeah, when you got Nick Saban, he's got time to prep, and he's got that talent. They can handle Clemson, but I think Clemson, to me, guys, my power ratings, I had them rated higher than any other team
1: in college football when Lawrence is on the field. Let's talk about the Buckeyes. Lane 20 at home against Indiana. A new and improved Indiana team. Do we know how good Indiana is with those victories over you know, Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State? Give us some thoughts here, Scott.
0: Yeah, and again, for Indiana, I mean, none of those wins really matter as much anymore. Uh, after we saw Michigan State, listen, I went against Michigan State when they played against Iowa. They were fresh off. Uh, the big win over Michigan, and just thought it was a great spot. Also saw that line coming down seven, six, five and a half, and thought, okay, they're getting a little bit too much credit right now, and the value has gone if you even thought about betting Michigan State. So they get crushed by Iowa 49-7, an Iowa Hawkeyes team that, you know, usually takes three games to get to 49. And then they come out last week, and you're thinking, I didn't play the game last week, uh, the Michigan State game. And you're thinking, all right, they might bounce back here. They got their butts kicked. They were in a tough spot off the win over the Wolverines. And they come out, and they look horrible for most of the game again. So – when I look at this Ohio State-Indiana game at 20-and-a-half, guys, I think it's priced exactly where it should be. Uh, there's too many mysteries about the Indiana Hoosiers right now on defense for me to get involved. And Ohio State, again, listen, that game against Nebraska, that's a close game until halftime. You know, there was the final minute-and-a-half, of the, of the first half against Nebraska, is like a three-point game, and then the first, like, four minutes of the third quarter, that was the difference in the game. Nebraska made a couple of stupid mistakes. Ohio State does what they do. They took advantage. They put up, like, 17 points over about four minutes of game time, spanning the first half and second half, and all of a sudden it's a blowout. So, listen, I think Ohio State's probably the third or fourth best team in college football. I just can't judge Indiana enough to say I'm going to jump on the points here. It, it has to be a pass for me.
3: With Ohio State, playing in the Big Ten, and like you mentioned, some of the powerhouse teams in the Big Ten kind of being downgraded this year. If they just win out, is that enough to get them into the championship series, or do they need to keep on winning impressively because the powerhouses in the Big Ten aren't so powerful this year?
0: I think if they get you know, if they just win their games uh, that they're going to be in the final four, so to speak. And so, I mean, you're going to get Alabama Clemson and you know, maybe Notre Dame, but I do, I think there's got to be a rep from the big 10 if they are undefeated and if Ohio state is able to win the rest of their games, I, I do believe that that's enough to get in. Even if they win, let's say they beat Indiana by three and they, you know, have another game, but look at the schedule. The schedule's pretty easy. You throw in a Michigan program that they've dominated for years a Michigan program that could fold the tent in the first quarter if they're down 14-0, and Ohio State blows them off the field. So the schedule for the Buckeyes is pretty soft. But I think all they got to do is win those soft games to get in the Final Four. All
1: right, he is Scott Spreitzer, Doc Sports. You can check out his picks at docsports.com. And, of course, Scott, uh, part of our Best Bets series on the website at tcmartinshow.com. You can check that uh, each and every Friday as well, too. Scott, before we leave the college game real quick, is there a a game that's really piquing your interest?
0: Yeah, I guess when I look
1: around at the different games that jump out at me this week, I'm going to
0: take a shot, or have, I should say, with Penn State over Iowa plus the points. Uh, Penn State showed that they're not going to give up in the second half last week. They were looking horrible the first half in Lincoln. And I also think at this point, Iowa is now a bit overvalued because of the last couple of the games, including that huge win over Michigan State that we just mentioned a couple of weeks ago. So Penn State is a team. I mean, I've got like six games, seven games that I'm just kind of waiting to see if I get affected by COVID. So far, Penn State, Iowa is a go. And I do like Penn State plus the points in on
1: that one. All right, we've got NFL football tomorrow night. A pretty decent game as well. we got Arizona traveling to Seattle to take on the, the suddenly struggling Seahawks. Seahawks favored by three in this one, of course. We saw what Kyler Murray did with DeAndre Hopkins with the uh, come-from-behind victory against the Bills on Sunday. Give us some quick thoughts on uh, Thursday night football.
0: Yeah, by the way, I had Arizona. I had them uh, minus two, and so I was bummed when they blew that lead that they had in the final minute, and then – uh, I was happy, of course, with the push, but it didn't make me feel too good when they did the right thing, which was not kick the extra point, but that could have been a miracle win after having a miracle loss against me, so we had to settle for the push there. The thing about Arizona is that, listen, they have played Seattle tough, even when Arizona hasn't been at their best. They've split the last eight games outright. They've gone 6-1-1 and against the spread. Everybody knows about Seattle's defense at this point. Everybody knows that the league is, or that the defense is one of the worst teams in the league. That the Arizona Cardinals have scored 30 or more in each of their last five games. So I think Arizona is going to be able to put points on the board. But guys, I will say this: you know, just today or in the last 24 hours, we've seen this number drop from four and a half down to three. At this point, the value's kind of gone on Arizona, especially since most power ratings have Seattle has about 5.5 points better than Arizona at this venue. Now you're talking about, hey, maybe Zona comes in and gets the outright win, but you've lost a couple of points of value already.
3: And it'll be interesting to see how Russell Wilson bounces back, too. He's got seven interceptions and three fumbles in his last four games. He said he's going to keep on swinging, but uh, that's the most turnovers he's had in a four-game span in his entire NFL career.
0: Yeah, I will say this, that last week that loss is on his shoulders. in in his entire time in the NFL – I can probably count on one hand how many times I've said that loss is on Russell Wilson. And so I I think he'll be fine. Uh, He's going to go up against a team you can move the ball against, pass the ball against. And so, listen, I'm kind of leading towards the over. It opened 56-and-a-half. It's now 57-and-a-half. Not going to be shocked to see 60, 65 points in this one.
1: You know, probably one of the most anticipated games, especially around here, is the Chiefs and the Raiders at Allegiant Stadium on Sunday night football. And we, the Chiefs, a, a seven-point choice here. Now the news comes out within the last two hours, like we talked about, about the Raiders, uh, Cleveland Farrell being out their defensive end, and eight other uh, defensive guys affected by this as well, too. We'll see what happens. Gruden thinks that these guys, besides Farrell, will be able to play. Uh, has there been any line movement since this announcement a couple hours, Scott? Has it been taken off the board by most places? And then uh, finally, go ahead and handicap this game. If
0: some places have it off the board. Some just went up a half a point. Uh, seven and a half on, the, on the, the books that have a spread on it, and then of course, like you like you said, some dropped off. The total hasn't done anything; it stayed at 56 and a half. And I think that last part of that intro that you said about John Gruden thinks most of these guys are going to be able to go is what's keeping people off of doing anything too much with this game. It's a tough handicap at this point uh, because of the situation. One of those things you got to wait until you get the OK or the you know or the fact that maybe some of these players are going to have to sit, which we won't find out until maybe as early or maybe as late, I should say, as Sunday morning. Uh, Listen, the public and Sharps up until the announcement were in agreement. Uh, They were backing the Chiefs in this game. And normally the public backs the Raiders, especially in Las Vegas. I'm not a big revenge motivation guy in pro sports. I rarely let it seep into my handicapping. But Andy Reid did talk about the Raiders circling Arrowhead Stadium, whether they did it because of the players asking the bus driver to do it or not. They took that victory lap, a couple of them, after winning that game earlier this season at Arrowhead Stadium. And for the coach of the Chiefs to mention that, it means that it is on their mind. It's bulletin board stuff. It's tough to go against KC. They're 15-3 and three against the spread the last 18. They've won eight straight on the road, covering seven. Nine-and-one against the spread against teams with a winning record. And also, remember, Andy Reid with both Philly and KC, 18-3 and three straight up uh, when he is off a bye week. And so that's a lot of good, juicy stuff if you back KC. I do know one thing for sure. The Kansas City Chiefs are going to be rooted against heavily by the bookmakers because this game is going to be teased down to one, one and a half like crazy. It's going to be like Baltimore over the Patriots this past week, and we saw the Patriots upset the public in that one. KC is going to be bet on teasers, parlays, every way you can imagine under the sun. And, uh, you know, again, right now as far as betting this game, it's just too tough to jump into it until we know more. About those defensive players,
1: and I agree with you wholeheartedly. It is going to be, everyone will probably be on Kansas City, and a lot of people like to play the revenge factor as well, too. Because again, Patrick Mahomes, what one Last the only game that he's lost was to the Raiders back in October on his home turf. So I think he's going to be ready to play, and the, this Raider defense is already suspect. Uh, Kansas City might put forty nine on the Raiders.
0: Hey Scott, yeah, and that's the thing you mentioned, like Mahomes and the Chiefs. If there's any time, I'm going to let motivation of revenge come into my handicapping it's going to be on a team like kansas city especially when they think they were disrespected by the raiders after the game you know with the circling of the of the of arrowhead stadium so if i am going to allow it to jump into any of my handicapping it might be kc now normally that means first half of the first quarter they've got a little bit of extra motivation a little bit extra you know energy but here's the thing if they're up 14 midway to the fourth quarter and they got the ball or they're up 20 or 17, they're not going to take their foot off the gas because of what they felt happened a few weeks ago.
1: That's where it comes into play. All right, my man. We appreciate it, as always. Check him out at docsports.com. You can get his picks. And a great follow on Twitter as well, too, at Scott Wins. Scotty, appreciate it, my man. Thanks, guys. Take care. There he is. All right, great stuff, as always, there. Hey,
3: by the way, uh, real quick, uh, you mentioned uh, the catch, of course, with uh, with from DeAndre Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Right now, he's looking at people to send him memes of that catch. The best meme will get an autographed DeAndre Hopkins jersey, <laughs> my favorite one that I've seen so far, yep. three bills around
1: him, and it says bills, bills, yep. bills, and then he's going up as direct deposit. Direct deposit. I'm sure Chuck will be all over that order. There you go. All right. Back out again tomorrow. I want to thank Paul Westhead for joining us, Scott Spritzer, Chris Bazio. Miss any part of the show? Go to the website tcmartinshow.com.